This is the Insight is Capital podcast. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual podcasters and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of AdvisorAnalyst.com. I'm Pierre Daly, Managing Editor of AdvisorAnalyst.com, and this is the Insight is Capital podcast. Joining us today are Rodrigo Gordillo and Mike Philbrick from Resolve Asset Management. Rodrigo and Mike, along with Adam Butler, are co-founders and portfolio managers at Resolve Asset Management for the Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation Fund, the Horizons Global Risk Parity ETF, and Resolve's managed accounts. Prior to co-founding Resolve in 2015, they were portfolio managers at Dundee Private Wealth, Richardson GMP, and Macquarie Private Wealth. They are also co-authors of the groundbreaking book, Adaptive Asset Allocation, Dynamic Global Portfolios to Profit in Good Times and Bad, published by Wiley. Gentlemen, it's great to be here with you. Thank you for having us. So this conversation is really an extension of a conversation we started last year uh, at a conference, and uh, that was the conversation about getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. It's a great a catchphrase for investing for the business, I think, for advisors. And I think it's a great catchphrase for, inv- I mean, it's really a great catchphrase for investors, especially now, I think, given the uh, the investment climate that we're in. Um, it's really sort of a dicey time. We had a little bit of a scare in Q4 of last year. Markets were down uh, 20%. We, you know, we sort of had a taste of a bear market, a uh, taste of what could be and possibly what could be worse if, if indeed some of the uh, valid fears come to pass. So it's a very timely conversation to have with you guys about doing things that are outside of your comfort zone, getting comfortable yeah. with being uncomfortable. Well, I think it, it dovetails well into the name of your podcast, which is Insight Capital. I think we're going to provide some insight. It's insight is capital. Insight is capital, yeah. right. So yeah. the insight that I think we're going to provide here today is extremely valuable capital for investors to embrace, um, especially because of the current situation. And, and, and what do we mean by that? Well, and you alluded to it as you were, as you were chatting in that we have extremely low yields and we have vi- high valuations for you know sort of North American stocks, which are broadly what most people are invested in. And so if we think about you know the numbers, the average Canadian has about 70% of their portfolio in Canadian stocks, three quarters of the balance is in U.S. stocks, so it's a ninety percent, give or take, North American portfolio. If right. you're an American listening to this, you know seventy-five to eighty percent of your portfolio is in the U.S. Uh, you probably don't have a ton of Canada, but again, we have a very concentrated, uh, focused portfolio of North American stocks. One, uh, one, you know, two currencies, but one economic uh, factor, growth, which we're overexposed to, and. The money, what's the, the other thing is what's the money for, right? So the money, if it's invested in stocks, th- these are long-term purposed assets and they are designed to meet some sort of obligation, whether you're an individual investor where you're preparing for your own retirement or you're an endowment that has to um, have cash flows of 4 or 5% a year and some, some end value or you're a pension fund who's, you know, getting more, you know, sort of withdrawals than they are um, um, contrib- contributions from the, um, uh, from, the, uh, from the people involved in those uh, pension schemes. And so those folks are faced with high valuations, which in the long term, 20 years plus, high valuations lead to lower future returns. 
right? And you have starting yields in the bond world that are very low. And so what is someone to do? And let me say to set the stage a little bit further and then you guys can can jump sure. in in that most long-term assumptions, long-term assumptions being used either actuarially in pension plans or in, in financial plans for individuals are somewhere like eight or 10%. Hmm. Contrast that with the, you know, the Financial Planning Standards Council, which sets long-term, you know, rates of return. They've set it at 5% nominal. You look at what Vanguard set it at, they're sort of in the 4% range, uh, GMOs in that same 4% nominal, like the, not adjusting for inflation. Right, right. So we have this gap between what some expect in the eight to 10 range and what we would probably ascribe as, as um, more reasonable assumptions. And so how are we gonna make up that gap, right? Are we, are we going to do things like add different asset classes to that North American portfolio? Right. Are we gonna include emerging market stocks? Are we gonna include commodities? Um, and you know, and how comfortable is that going to be for each step of the way where we get further and further away from what our friends are doing? Right. So what? So the, the piece getting comfortable with being uncomfortable really takes you through a spectrum of ways that you can move towards improving your situation. So what's the situation? We expect historically to, to achieve 8 to 10% returns. We know given current valuations, it's going to be low. Right, so step one is to recognize that we have a huge home country bias. So the first step is to do something different, something that is uncomfortable, to go global and start getting exposures to different returns from commodities and international equities, U.S. equities, South American equities, um, some German bonds, you know, tips, really diversify your opportunity set. Now, the problem with that is that you are now moving away from a very comfortable portfolio that Canadians have been exposed to their whole lives. And advisors have built their business on, the Canadian 60-40 yeah. portfolio. Now, that's okay. If you want to remain in that, we, we're totally cool. We understand that it is very uncomfortable for people to move globally and for advisors to move globally. But So that'll mean, if you stay where you are, you will be comfortable in your allocation. But you, as an advisor, need to have uncomfortable discussions with your clients about what they need to do in order to survive. They're gonna need so to- So it's gotta be a gradual thing, it's gotta be a nudge. I think first first and foremost, I think what we're trying to, to, to the point we're trying to make is that you can stay where you are, yeah. but you need to educate your clients that they need to work longer, they need to save more, right? Because that 4% that withdrawal rate is not gonna be enough, you're not gonna be able to retire at 65 if the current valuations continue to be where they are. So the first getting the thing you need to get comfortable with if you're gonna stay status quo is in working longer and saving more. Now, if you then take the next step and say, okay, hold up, maybe okay, so, we are So this is, this is the conversation where, where you're saying these are your options. That's right. You stay put and, yeah, and look none at, of them. at the, your time horizon changes on, on working longer, saving for longer, having to push out your... And your, none of these yeah. options are comfortable, right? So this is why the title is getting comfortable <laughs> with being uncomfortable. The yeah. first one is you think you're comfortable by not making a change, but you have to have the uncomfortable discussion with your clients about working longer and saving more. Yeah, but then people get comfortable with the devil they know. Exactly. Right? right? So so the problem is that that you're 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 fine with being uncomfortable in a in an in a in a place that's not going to make it for you. I mean, you're fine if the consequence of staying where you are, staying put status quo um is, is going to But make then the, yeah, so that really balances out the discussion right. where yeah. where you're right. saying well, so we're so not that or it's work we're not prescriptive. Maybe I can yeah. offer a slightly it, it, do you want to be comfortable in the short term, yeah. but not successful in the long term? 
or do you want to endure some discomfort in the short term, i.e. tracking air to a benchmark, tracking air to your friends, yeah. but be long-term comfortable that you're more likely to achieve financial success. And, and we always say, listen, this comes down to one thing and one thing only. When it comes to investing, would you like to be successful or comfortable. Yeah, that was the phrase right. that are that I really like. I yeah. really like. I mean, I think that's a really great really great phrase. Yeah, yeah. You can't the have the answer both. to yeah. that question has very different steps that you take. Yeah. And so you really have to sit down and look yourself in the mirror because if you embrace um, alternatives and there's a con you know a continuum of alternatives from simple different asset classes to regions to factors and to actual alternative strategies. And each one gets a little bit more different, but adds a little bit more value, adds more complexity, adds more value. And so as you march out that, you're gonna be less and less like the market and less and less like your friends, which means in the shorter term, you're gonna be more and more uncomfortable. But in the longer term, you should have a much higher probability of success with your financial goals. What's the reaction like when, like, I imagine when you're face-to-face with clients, when you're talking about this idea and you, you put it to them verbally, what's the reaction like to that question? Yeah, I, I think we should both um, uh, answer that because I think we'll have slightly different takes. In the moment, the client totally gets it. And they're like, I am on board. And then a year or two or three passes, when they're tracking air to North American stocks, whatever the hot stock market, S&P 500, for example, they're tracking air to the S&P 500 is large and they're underperforming for three and four and five years at a time. That's when the, the discipline and the ability to tolerate that difference starts to wane. And that's where you have to step up the educational side of things in order to continue to try and keep folks on point. Um, you know, we observe behaviors that are extraordinary deleterious to financial outcomes. Even, you know, our, our fund flows. We had exceptional returns coming into the end of 17 and beginning of 18. We had also exceptional fund flows. Uh, there's been a period where the returns have been less robust, right? A normal period of low return slash drawdown. And then we get outflows. And this is why that I think the Dalbar studies are pretty representative when they track fund flows and actual outcomes of in investors. So if you don't have that educational overlay, you have this proclivity to performance chase, which has negative impact on your performance. But that, that would be what I would say. No, I, I agree. I, I think that um, there are different segments in our business that we have created you know, more targeted educational material towards. And certainly private wealth is one of them and uh, a fund that we launched in the U.S. recently. We've done a very good job in 2018 of educating on what the repercussions are of adding money in a period of drawdown. And for those two segments, we got net inflows, while other ones that we weren't focused too much on, we got net, net outflows. I mean, we had net inflows in the worst month in my career in 13 years, the month of October 2018, and that was due specifically to education. So to answer your question, um, how do clients deal with it? Well, if you do a good enough job of educating it, educating about it, you are going to get the outcome that you want and you desire. So education is absolutely key to this spectrum and to success within this spectrum. If you feel like not educating and just kind of going with the flow, you're doing it 60-40, that's fantastic. 
But if you want to move to the next level of uncomfortability, investing in German bonds, investing yeah. in European equities and, and emerging markets and the U.S. and exposure to all those currencies, then you need to have another level of education that is required that is easier, actually. It's actually just saying, hey, listen, it's, it makes sense. Let's just diversify to other economies. Why is ours going to be the best one? I mean, Canada from, from 2014 to now is basically flat, whereas you know, if you just did a market cap weighted index, you would have had 30% exposure to the U.S. It's up to 60% in that period. So you can see the benefits of it. But the next level, the one after that, you know, let's say you go you go global diversification. There is better valuation metrics from emerging markets that you're going to get a bump up in return from. So that improves your outcome. Maybe you have to save less and work less. But you can take an extra step and get into more alternatives like uh, smart beta or factor investing, mm-hmm. value, momentum, quality, um, um, you know, small cap, whatever you can find to start building that portfolio. Now we're getting into a level of discomfort that even advisors haven't beefed up on. Well, yeah, I think even advisors, allocators, let, let's go through the low value country portfolio where we can have we can have a portfolio with 10 or 11 times earnings. It's Turkey, Russia, Czech Republic. Can, should I go on? Can I can <laughs> you know I what? sign you up? Yeah. Talk about discomfort. Expected future returns higher. Why? That that ranks those, lower. Those markets rank pretty high. They rank up there in the alternative. They rank up with the alternative space. Not, almost not in beyond, the alternative space. Almost but, beyond. I mean, I was yeah. I was at a, a Schiller presentation where Professor Schiller was talking about. The, I think he was launching a product here in Canada on you know low valuation type uh, products. Actually, it was a housing product. Um, but someone asked in the audience, they said, uh, you know, what do we do, Mr. Sh- Professor Schiller, with with the valuation so high in the world? And he tilted his head, and he, I mean, we had a room of of portfolio managers, billions of dollars in AUM, and he tilted his head, and he said, what are you, what are you talking about? So th- there are a couple of markets that are highly valued. But generally speaking, even foreign developed markets are sort of average. And then if you get into the emerging market world, like the Turkey, and, and back then it was Brazil, right. it was in that, uh, you know, Russia, all that. He said, you can build a portfolio of a P9 countries. Can, can, we, can we sign you up? And the room literally laughed out loud, like scoffed out loud. And we know why, right? Because of the career risk involved. Absolutely. And what's the what is the what's the proclivity of a client? Um, hi, um, Pierre. It's Mike, your advisor. <laughs> uh, here's the portfolio I'd like to buy for you today. And uh, you know, sometimes you'll get it right, and the performance will be there, and you'll keep that client. And but if you underperform, the the better performing, more familiar asset classes with that very unique portfolio over some shorter period of time, what's the chances or what's the likelihood that that person can stick with it? And so that that becomes, you know, that that in a microcosm is the challenge of of discomfort. Yeah, I, I think what what what. So going back going back to the uh, going back to that phrase, um, do you want to be successful yeah. or comfortable? Yeah, I think that's that's so eloquent because it captures not only the idea that you have to do things that are beyond your comfort level, but it also captures uh, something that that's really underestimated. Both by investors and I suspect by by the advisors, um, and that's the the behavioral aspect of uh, you know the discipline, sticking to oh. sticking to the knitting, right? Sticking to the investment plan. I think I think as you said, you know, two to three years out, you start to run into 
objections from from investors, from clients, and, and then you have to ramp up the the educational aspect of, of your work. But yeah. but that's such that's such an underestimated factor in terms of the success of a plan, the success of your invest, success of your investing. Totally plan, agree. Right, because because two to three years out. A uh, client could could just as easily abandon you as well as or or adopt what you're saying to them, and then and then that does become deleterious to them, uh, and that's 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 actually the top risk in the market, isn't it? It's, it's what you do to it. yourself. It's not what the market does to you. It's it's, and so so you know I, I suspect that's the reason for your success. You guys are enjoying success because you've you've discovered that behavior is paramount. Well, but, it, I, I would say, yeah, yeah. You're, you're nailing it right now. I think I think that's something, a lesson that advisors, a lot of advisors, not all, I think, I think there's a lot of advisors who are on board with that. Um, and and so this, this is actually, it's a great discussion uh, mm-hmm. to have, not only for advisors, obviously, but for investors. Absolutely. A hundred percent at the nexus of investor, if we, if we just, let, let's isolate to the investment advisor world, where we have a, a professional advisor dealing with a retail client. Without a doubt, that individual is at the nexus of that client's success. And behaviorally, that is going to be the majority of the battle, without a doubt. So, so you've got this, you've got this uh, level of discomfort. So what is the best optimal portfolio for an individual? It's the portfolio that they will stick with given their, pro, given their behaviorally, uh, vulner, behavioral vulnerabilities and then considering the optimal portfolio. So we first have to address, or an advisor, uh, in my mind, has to has to assess what are the behavioral vulnerabilities this person has. What's their unusual or unique tracking errors? Are they an employee of Apple or Google? Do they own a lot of Google stock? Because if you do, and I tell you to sell all your Google, you can't have that single stock risk, and you have to go to work every day, and everybody else has has their Google, and you're underperforming them. I'm not going to be your advisor for very long, right? right. There's going to be breaks there, and so. The, the advisor has to assess that, has to give a mix of a portfolio that balances both the behavioral side and the optimality of the portfolio. And I think that is the most important issue. And then further, I would say that what is never tracked in any of the numbers for, um, for clients who have advisors, it's never tracked anywhere because they say, well, here's the return that you had with your advisor. But we don't have the counterfactual. We don't have all those moments in time where that advisor, for example, in 2009, said to the client, you must hold here. You must stay the course. And then that client stayed the course. Those clients that didn't stay the course, they had implications to their portfolio that are catastrophic. Right. Right. So we have these, this is a power law. We have these moments where the advice is so important. It outweighs all previous advice, all previous advice, and all future advice because you stayed with the program. That advisor got you to hang in there and actually recover, so that you didn't just receive all the risk and none of the return. You endured the risk in the '09 scenario, and you also captured the return. You participated in the recovery, right? Where yeah. is that? This is the advisor the alpha yeah. that, that Bangor massive. talks about. It is massive, it is massive it's, it's, and it it's, is. It's, it's, <laughs> It is when things are going well, which is like Mike said, most of the time it's going kind of okay. So the advice seems kind of like, oh, yeah, we're not doing anything. There's nothing to change here. Thanks for coming in. We'll see you next year. But it is those crucial moments when the advisor is there to hold hands. And look, 
that was a, a classic portfolio, 60-40 in March of 09, is that's when you're going to feel the pain for that type of advice. We deal, uh, Resolve Asset Management deals in a different world where the pain is going to be more of a tracking error pain. When Canada is killing it and our well-diversified global strategies with alternative investments and these very complicated strategies are in there are underperforming Canada. This is a different type of pain that we have and our ability to get our clients to hold the course is going to be important. So this goes back to the idea of the advisor sitting at the nexus of success of the client that you have. And so there are going to be a bunch of advisors out there that have clients in their 60s and 70s. You may not have the ability to change their minds and add 100% of your portfolio to alternatives. And then you may, may have the young advisor who's starting to build this book and have the opportunity to auto-select clients, which is kind of what we've done, right? We write a lot of complex topics and we talk about alternatives. So the people that we've attracted are ones that are more willing to go out on the spectrum, on the on the right, right side of the spectrum, on the more complex side of the spectrum. They feel comfortable with the level of expertise that we put out there and our transparency, right? So you got to know your client base. And they're you got to the decide what type of client you want to build yeah. into your portfolio and then make the appropriate decision. This is not prescriptive. This is just mm -hmm. understanding, know thyself and know thy client. That's the most important thing. And then build on that. Yeah, L let, me, let me break it down for you and give you a small example of how impactful this can be, these moments in time can be. In 2009, March, the market bottoms. Obviously, we all know in Canada, that's our RSP season. I had a family member who I dealt with for many years. And he calls me up and he says, I'm not gonna make my $25,000 RSP contribution this year because you know, I have no returns to show for in my in my portfolio. Of course, we're going through you know a, a, a pop a bear market where you're down 50% across the board. So I'm not showing returns, so I'm gonna take this money and I'm gonna pay off my mortgage with it. All right, about 40 years old at the time. I said to him, I said, don't do that. This is low valuations. It means the future opportunity is massive. Right. It, it, it Exactly what you're stating in that I have this portfolio that doesn't have a lot of returns is exactly why you should be putting money in. Right. This is the counterintuitive nature of dealing with your own it's funds. It's the uh, classical uh, Charlie Ellis question. Yeah. Right. Where which, the game. Yeah. Which one, you know, which yeah. one, do, which one do you choose? I, w I want yeah. low valuations is what I want. So he doesn't make the contribution. I said, even put it in, take your tax return, take $12,000 and put it on your mortgage. No, just puts it on his mortgage. Now, let's fast forward and do the math. 40 years old, that 25 becomes 50 the next year. Let's double that at equity rate of return every 7.2 years. So 50 in seven years becomes 100. In 14 years, it becomes 200. And in 21, call it 22 years, it becomes $400,000. How many $400,000 mistakes can a portfolio take? Can someone's retirement uh, opportunity take? How, how many $400,000 mistakes can you make? You can't make very many of them and have a really robust retirement. And that's just a microcosm of how in these very, these very highly impactful moments, advisors can really make a difference. And that's, that's that moment, but as Rodrigo highlighted, through this whole um, sort of line of time by adding alternatives that actually dampen the portfolio's volatility by understanding that there are, there are two major factors at work in the, in the world of, of assets. One is inflation and one is growth. And these dynamics will have shocks and a growth shock 
which happened in 09, uh, is very, very, has a very negative effect on some assets, but has a very positive effect on other assets. Right. Right. That the, the U.S. long term treasury uh, market was up 63% in Canadian dollar terms. How many people own seven to 10 year or 20 year plus U.S. treasuries? Not very many. No. Categorically, though, they are almost always a negative one correlation to Canadian stocks. A diversifier, yes. Comfortable? No. Why not comfortable? Well, they only yield 2 or 3% today. So where's the return going to come from? They only yielded 2 or 3% in 07, and they got 63%. Yeah. So some of it's currency, some of it's the change in rate expectations. Um, none of my friends own them, so why should I own them? <laughs> so <Right? sure. laughs> I also think it's important to talk about, so Mike just had a, a great story about a client <clears throat> who was very uncomfortable making this decision. But, you know, you tell this story to certain people, and they say, well, if I get that opportunity again, if I get an opportunity like 2009, there's no way I'm going to make that mistake again. I'm going to add money in, right? And you say, and we say, really? <laughs> you would, if you find an opportunity that's so outlandish, because remember how scary it was, right? Mm-hmm. The world was going to fall apart. You know, you got to put yourself in, in your own shoes again, back how it felt back in 2009. Yeah. Everything was falling apart, and you had the option to do it, and you couldn't pull the trigger. But if I give you that opportunity today, would you pull the trigger? Yeah, of course I would. Well, guess what? I have an opportunity for you. Out of all these alternative factors that are well-documented and researched, there's one that we have 600 years of data for to be persistent and pervasive across different market regimes and has worked to be the most powerful factor out of all of them. does better than value. does better than quality. It is absolutely fantastic and the one we have most evidence for. And it is currently in one of the largest drawdowns in its history. It's the opportunity of a lifetime. How much do you want in? Well, I can't do that. Why not? Because mm-hmm. it's broken, mm-hmm. right? This is the this is the same discussion over and over again. When it's value, there's you know buy value. No, I think value might not. Every time that when there's the most opportunities, that toughest time to put money in and get make it work. And so we can't. It's been really tough to get people advisors to really double down on that trend factor, right? These managed yeah. futures CTAs, they've had a horrible five year period. This is time to buy. Well, yeah. that's they're down. I, I, they're you know, down fifty like, percent, and we're going to test. Yeah, your you, see if your mouth is writing a check that you can actually cash <laughs> at the bank. <laughs> see, <laughs> you know what? Though you know, you know, like I, it, I recall, like if you if you don't have the conversation, like if you're not willing to have, if you don't have the courage to, as an advisor or as an allocator, you know, anybody that's in charge or, or sort of in a leadership position on asset decisions, if you don't have the conversation either way about these things with your clients, then, you know, you're really missing an opportunity to make your mark. I think, I think it's, you know, you're right. These things like 2009, they only come once in a decade or once in 20 years. Uh, or they could come at different times from you know from less less well known, less familiar asset groups uh, at any given time, right? Emer- whether it's emerging markets or alternatives or mm-hmm. managed futures, and, and so you could have these conversations repeatedly with your clients. But if you don't have, if if you if you never venture into that conversation area, you'll never be able to prove or never have the evidence in the future to say I did tell you. You knew about it, and you opted to not do it. 
I told you in 2009. I Ooh, told you. That's a right? tough one. And, and I know clients love to be told that. No, they don't. <laughs> but 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 maybe maybe you know you have to you have to step back yeah, on, on I told you so. You're not going to get into the but but just between us. I, I think it's a bit I think, of conditioning for sure. I've done it. Yeah, I, I've done it softly. It, but you have to important. do it with without you know without being so vehement about it. Or you have to be mm-hmm. you, know, you have to be willing to do it without being so. It it has to be a high conviction conversation in terms yeah. of the behavioral part. But, you know, as soon as you get resistance, then you step back. You say, okay, yeah. I, just, I just want you to know. Yeah. I'm not saying we have to do it. I just want you to know about it. Right. And, 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 you know, down the road, when we look back, you know, if I was right, I'm not going to say anything. You'll know. It's, it's right? being, it's as an advisor, being able to ascertain for an individual client that a nexus point between their behavioral vulnerabilities and the opportunity for you to be quantitatively accurate in the highest sharp mm-hmm. ratio portfolio, the highest risk-adjusted returns that, you know, that's math. You can kind of calculate that out. But then I've got to overlay where you're going to have your behavioral vulnerabilities. And that really is an artful thing. That is that is really where it takes, exper- you know, professionals who are advisors who have a lot of experience and have... Uh, worked through time, both in the markets and with clients, and have been, you know, um, sort of, sort of, you know, master classmen, if you will, in the approach. To and their, also that they, yeah, it's a, there's yeah. a learning curve, and that's that and, and, of, I, and I think you know, for the young advisors out there, you can actually create that base that is more willing to go deeper and deeper down that rabbit hole. So you just you have to decide, right, whether you want to make your because it becomes that that spectrum becomes also not just from simple to complex, but also from full transparency to really it, it can go as much as Opaque. zero opaqueness, tr- zero transparency. Mm-hmm. So, well, like even in our in our lineup, we have a passive risk parity portfolio, which shows you know it just invests in every single global asset class and equal risk contributions, so that the maniacs aren't taking over the asylum. So you know you can even say those things, and people get it. You don't yeah. want emerging markets to dominate the risk of the portfolio. And anytime you ask what happened, we can show you the portfolio. You can see what's going on. Even adaptive asset allocation that will eliminate asset classes completely to kind of get that momentum going. We can still have a conversation and transparency and show you the asset classes. When we get into our hedge fund, now we have five, six, seven different uh, factors that are long and short, carry, momentum, trend, volatility. You can still kind of disaggregate those returns a little bit and have a conversation, but we can't get into the nitty gritty of it. There's got to be a level of trust there for the for the client. And, Absolutely. And, there you, and then you find out when you try to have these conversations yeah. how far and, along you are. In and that, then, of course, right? you have these capacity constraint strategies. Right, that we are building out. This is what we do, and we have kind of carved out two hundred, three hundred million dollars that is going to be kind of capacity constrained, and these are going to be hundreds of different strategies that we can't even articulate that provide now a two, three sharp. Right, so I can't even. This is just going to be: Are you in or are you in? This is going to be our best stuff, and can you do it? Now we have no way of explaining why we made money, lost money, lost money for five consecutive months, and you just have to have a level, a leap of faith. But those are the strategies. That fund is likely to provide the highest sharp ratio. So within that spectrum is what you need to work with. Is it's it's transparency and opaqueness. Right? That's another level of getting comfortable with being uncomfortable that is rarely talked about. And I think we can also talk about the. Um, I think we we had a conversation about this in the ETF conference last year. That's right. Yeah. On you know once you get into the alternative space, 
I find that the vast majority of advisors are the most comfortable. They're looking for the strategy that's not going to lose their clients' money. They're looking for the low volatility, safe, a right. line item in their portfolio they can point to in 2008 and say, yeah, we lost 40% across the board everywhere else. But remember that market neutral strategy? That was up 3%. I told you that fund wasn't going to lose you money. But the reality is what impact does that true that that 5 10% allocation to a very low volatility mandate have to your portfolio? And it's, it's, it's comfortable. Most right. managers prefer a low volatility alternative. But the truth is, and we talk about this in our piece called capital efficiency, that what you want is to have as much volatility as you can get on that side of the equation as long as it's non-correlated to the rest of your portfolio. So that in a period like 2008, for example, trend, trend managers or CTAs, managed futures, were up in 08 anywhere from 20 to 100%. So a 5% allocation to that high volatility manager makes a big impact in terms of diversifying the risk in your portfolio. If you, what, do you, what would you prefer in 08? A 3% return or a 100% return on that 5%, 10% sleep? So we're advocates of, of, make, of trying to nudge advisors to think about that sleeve. It's a very precious amount that the, the banks give you. They, they, you can only do 10% or 15% or 20%. Do you really wanna throw it away with something that you can point to that says, hey, we were okay, or do you want something that is going to have volatile months, volatile years? There may be times where it loses money at the same time as the market, but over the long period of time, it actually reduces the overall portfolio volatility and may actually protect you a lot in periods like 08, 2000, 2001, and so on. So we, we want to advocate, we want to educate, and we, we urge advisors to read the capital efficiency piece that we wrote because it is, it, it, it is that extra level, that that much better return that you can uh, inch up your, your clients' portfolios so that they don't have to work longer, they don't have to save that much long. Yeah, it's th it, it, thinking it, about it at the portfolio yeah. level. Yeah. I think, uh, isn't that sort of the, uh, isn't that one of the main areas of weakness? I mean, isn't that really the greatest weakness uh, of all? Because I think advisors are, you know, it's been a rough 10 years. For, for many different reasons. I mean, it's been a great 10 years for the market, mm -hmm. but it didn't necessarily work out that way for, for the clients, for the investors, depending on, on when they got back in, mm -hmm. how long it took for them to, to be coaxed back in. And now that they're coaxed back in, can they be coaxed into doing things outside of their comfort zone, which took so long to, to regain after, yeah. after you know, they're getting hit in the face in, in 2000, you know. So I, I think, I, I, you know, that that's, that's the part that that's probably the biggest problem, right? Is is that you, you can have you can have the greatest ideas, uh, but implementing them becomes the bigger challenge. Well, what do you want to do when it comes to investing? Mm -hmm. You want to be comfortable, or you want to be successful? Well, see, I don't. I, yeah, I think that's. <laughs> I think that phrase, the the power of the phrase, would be underestimated. Yeah. I want to be successful. Know. Okay, here <clears throat> is the recipe for success. I don't like that recipe. Yeah. Okay. Please revisit question one. Well, yeah, <laughs> it's almost like asking people to do public <laughs> no, speaking. No, but it's it? also we gotta uh, isn't we, it? <laughs> we gotta put this into yes, context. Life depends yes. on it. Yeah, well, I don't the, care. That's the best. Is the, is the uh, is people are more afraid of public yeah. speaking than dying. So if you're at a funeral, you'd rather be in the coffin <laughs> yeah. than to giving the eulogy. <laughs> that's awesome. Right. I love that. You know, we we do have to put things into context. though. this idea of going out in the uncomfortable spectrum has gotten harder and harder over the last ten years because of the 
push from the from people in the industry, from banks, from regulators, to go more and more passive, right? Especially in the U.S. because the only game in town has been U.S. equities and U.S. treasuries. So it it has not paid to be active. It has not paid to be diversified. It is paid to be in a passive 60-40 U.S. portfolio. And a lot of Canadians get exposure to U.S. as well. So we are in a situation where even in the U.S., you have a uh, dep- uh, Department of Labor coming down the pike and saying, listen, we are going to review RIAs, Registered Investment Advisors, to make sure that they're not overcharging their clients. So Now, there's nuance there. But advisors have said, and RIA firms have said, well, I'm not going to take any chances. We are only doing passive, low-cost indexing. And so we're at a point where you can't even have the active conversation. This is an objection that you guys are encountering. It's like I'm, yeah. I'm liable here yeah. to making any changes, but I, I, I'm, and they're misunderstanding the ruling, right? Right? You, it just it takes more work. You have to be able to justify higher fees. Yeah, they're worried you're getting paid right. for doing nothing. It's not that you have to give them the lowest fees. You have to be able to justify higher fees. And of course, the more complex you go, the higher the fees. You can and and are able to justify in front of the regulators. But few people are willing to be uncomfortable and learn and mm. and be able to justify that. And I, so it's I, gotten I, harder yeah, than it, ever. It, it, yeah. it translates into the profession. And this is pervasive. This is in Canada as well. Yeah. So there isn't a consistent interpretation of whether um, a professional who's advising clients is responsible for portfolio level or individual security level. Um, and, and, and so in, in our estimation, it should be portfolio level. You know what makes up the pieces is irrelevant. What matters is the entire portfolio. Um, but again, that is against the um, uh, general proclivities of of individual real humans who are clients, in that they're going to look at that line item that is CTAs that is down fifty percent over the last five years, and you're you're going to say, let's rebalance. What are we rebalancing? Well, we're taking some from our U.S. equity holdings because that has grown the most, and we're putting it into the CTA holdings because that's what we do when we rebalance. And you know, six, you're five, you're six, you're seven, you're still rebalancing, and it doesn't seem like it's working. But let me take you back to 2003 to 2008, where emerging markets had returns that were a thousand percent, and the S and P only went back to it only got back to its previous 2000 high in 2014. So uh, in in 2007, it didn't quite get there. So you had this massive performance in EM. So you'd been taking money off the EM table, you'd been putting it. In your S and P and your other your your, right. your CTA uh, pools, then um, the proverbial shit hits the fan, the world blows up. Oh, and then we have a different source of return, right? The CTA does well, and the equity buckets do poorly. What do we do? We take from the CTA, we give to the equity buckets. Then what happens? Then we get this huge U.S. run from 09 to today. What should we be doing today? We should be rebalancing away from the S and P into those CTAs that are down. Fifty percent, and they've been down. Call it ten percent a year for five years. So, how many? How, is that uncomfortable? But when the proverbial shit hits the fan yet again, I don't know when that is. One year, two years, five years. That high volatility piece of uh, your portfolio that is designed to create those returns at that period of time is going to be the source of returns that you use to buy. BMO when it had a 10% dividend. Right. Where are you going to get? I, I would I would buy a 50% decline. With what? With what money? With your right. With your right. Unless you have those bonus? alternatives yeah. in the portfolio, which allow you to harness the ability to rebalance, then I mean it's all just talk. 
And, um, you know, the individuals and advisors have to be very, very careful about being fooled by their own overconfidence. I think, you know, any act of investing is an act of overconfidence, right? Any act. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, it's a very high it, conviction activity. Yeah, it says even, even if I don't have high conviction, when I act, I'm yeah. overconfident because yeah. I've gone from my passive, whatever it is, whatever my reference portfolio is, I've made a bet against that. But isn't that the fear that the, that the, uh, the passive um, part of the industry has has sort of indoctrinated in the last... Well, there is no passive. passive. There yeah. is no passive. passive. Well, well, because there you're actively no, buying passive yeah, you're investments. you're actively... Intel- Nobody's just buying one, one, one there's fund, one, right? Yeah. one passive portfolio. That's the global market portfolio. Yeah. And that's taking all the world's assets in their market cap and saying, I'll own all of those. By the way, nobody owns that. It's the only portfolio that everybody owns collectively, but nobody owns it. And there's no yeah. way of rebalancing because okay. the, the the asset allocation will be defined by the masses of the world going into and out of these asset classes. So that is truly the only way you can invest when you're exposed to global growth and don't have to do a thing. It's the global market portfolio, okay? That's the only truly That's the passive. Only so That's so when people get. say in Canada that they're passive investors, what they're really saying is that they're low-cost investors because their portfolios are dominated by XIU or, Cana- or whatever. You right, name the right. Canadian ETF that is 60% of their portfolio, right? Or there is five different diversified asset classes, but who came up with that allocation? If it's not the global market portfolio, there has been a very clear violation of passive, and you have made very active and overconfident decisions of what what's going to happen in the future and what is correct. And that, I, I, once again, from 2014 to today, zip. Well, Very I, I love it because that does, that, does away, that does away with the passive argument. Discussion, of course. Such a, it's such a waste of time, isn't it? Absolutely. Now, let, let's get to what we really need. Like <laughs> Rodrigo said, it's low cost. Yeah. Fair enough. But that, and, and that, too, I wanted to say earlier because I think, I think that so much time and effort and energy and money has been spent on – this low cost argument mm-hmm. that that's become you know for some that's become everything and then and then what's really important is completely bypassed how absolutely much, you know how much does it cost you know it becomes the the bigger question than than what's the risk or what what can i expect from this or yeah. why and is it in my portfolio that's what rodrigo was talking about yeah. earlier with DOL coming down with these rules in the US so that has become the primary focus is yeah. uh, what what's the cost well in the absence of value, of course, we should discuss cost. But we're now at three basis points. We're at free for beta. So how might we add value to the portfolio? And, and one thing I would offer as a starting point for advisors, for allocators, uh, for individuals to consider is what is your reference portfolio? What's the portfolio that says, I know nothing. I have no bias. The world isn't overpriced. It's not underpriced. It's, I don't think rates are high. I don't think they're low. I don't think there's a growth shock. I don't think there isn't. What's the portfolio where you're like, I don't know. I don't have an opinion. That becomes your reference portfolio. Until you've done that exercise, you're just wandering through the forest by saying, I'm going to do 60-40 U.S. or 60-40 Canada U.S. Or I'm going to a have traditional a, portfolio, yeah, whatever that right, is. Yeah. Right? Until, you, until you sit down and say, well, what, what if I knew nothing? What does that portfolio look like? And then only then can you take bets against that portfolio or inform that portfolio, whether that be with 
different asset classes that you have uh, conviction weights around or with factor uh, portfolios right. or factors. Like I want to impart the low vol factor or I want to impart the value factor on my portfolio of stocks or on my general portfolio. But until you know where the reference portfolio of I know nothing is, you you are not doing anything and you, you are wandering aimlessly through the desert. You have no goal, right? And I think if you were to ask folks, what is what is north? What What is actual ground zero? What's the reference portfolio? You're not gonna get a lot of good answers. So if I were to if I were to say one place to start was to say, okay, here's me, here's my income, here's my retirement goals, you know, here's you know, here's the time I have, here's my savings rate, what's my I know nothing portfolio? That's the step one. And then is okay, what ways might I have a high degree of confidence over the next twenty years to improve the outcomes on that reference portfolio? Is it by adding asset classes that I haven't considered? Right. Is it by um, adding other regions that I didn't quite have in my reference portfolio, building a new reference portfolio? Is it, in fact, in, in, um, uh, imparting some factors, long-only factors or long-short factors? What about alternative strategies? And again, you can see I'm running a spectrum yeah. from, from, um, you know, from comfortable to harder to understand yeah. from from low complexity to high complexity um, and and so but I'm also running a spectrum from low impact to high impact and and we, look every advisor is gonna have a different way to do it we actually put our fake money where our mouths are <laughs> with the uh, we, we wrote a piece called the Buffett bet portfolio based on risk parity and factors so if you look that up right you'll be able to see our rationale when when uh, that Buffett bet ended with um, um, who, Ted, uh, Ted Sadies. Sadies. When that ended, we decided to put it out there. Um, and so you can see what our logic is, right. what we, like what first principles are, what's a passive portfolio. We talk about all these principles, right? Uh, what is a diversified set of strategies that you can use? What type of level of risk do you wanna put on that portfolio to make sure that you can actually compete with the S and P five hundred's volatility and risk that it takes, and so on. And so, so, so that would be your your reference. That would be that would be a, an interesting portfolio that we're going to continue to track. That would be our version of moving at the right area of spectrum. That that would be something like the um, the S and P five hundred over time. So but we'll you, put a link hit, to it. In, sure. We'll put a link to it. Great. With the post, okay. And so that you it's added easy another to find. Re really neat item. I have a reference portfolio. Do I want to add leverage to it? Because that that's a decision. Mm -hmm. And then then in, in as you add things to your reference portfolio, what becomes the new reference portfolio? Okay, there's my new, you know, status quo um, and uh, homeostasis, if you will. And uh, and then how would I take bets against that? So uh, and leverage aversion is something that is very well. Uh, lived at the moment. People don't like leverage. The industry teaches against leverage. Um, and therein lies an edge, right? Just right. like lottery. The reason, the reason that low vol ETFs work so well is because there is a, there's some aversion to using leverage. And so Explicit. people, yeah. And, and so people use, uh, they, they uh, get exposures to higher beta or high volatility stocks in hopes of getting better return and are leaving behind really low volatility stocks that should be bought and levered to do better from a risk adjusted percentage. So low volatility is the new uh, 
you know, the latest fad and it, and it works precisely because people aren't willing to take leverage. So if you are willing to take some leverage, you're going to do much better. It's been a thing for, for a long time, though. What's it's that? Low volatility funds. Yeah. Yeah. Sure, sure. I, I think even, you know, I remember my rookie training class back at uh, Nesbitt in like 1990-something. And they came in and talked about, you know, high dividend stocks, utility stocks, bank stocks. I mean, all, obviously also a significant interest-sensitive uh, situation. Low vol also loads on a couple of other factors. That's why it's called an anomaly and not a factor. So, you know, there there's some, you know, there's some, uh, I would say there's some debate there about about low vol and what drives it. What are the economic factors that drive it that, that you know, we'll leave aside for the moment. Um, but yeah, it, it's worked. But is it worked because dividend stocks are highly interest sensitive and we started at 18.5% rates in 1982 and we're sitting at almost the lowest rates in history? Maybe. Maybe there's an impact there. Yeah. And you just want to make sure also that whatever factor or anomaly that you're loading positively on, is there any unintended consequences, i.e. other factors that you're loading negatively on? So if I load on low vol, low vol, let's say it's really popular and valuations become very stretched. So you could possibly be loading positive on your low vol anomaly, but negative on your value factor premia. And so those are things you might want to have keep an eye on or be, be familiar with as you're building your factor portfolio. Again, the reason that you should diversify amongst factors. So speaking of, you know, uh, the quality factor and the momentum factor, those have sort of sharp ratios of, you know, 0.6. If you combine them, the sharp ratio, you, you know, 0.6 plus 0.6, you get a, 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 a sharp of like 1.1 because of their non-correlation. Um, but it's gonna be uncomfortable, right? Because the one, you know, quality's done really well and momentum's done really poorly. And the, the propensity will be for someone to say, I don't even have to finish the sentence, I'm sure, that they're, they're gonna move in the opposite then correct direction uh, right. with that, that set of facts at their feet, which is challenging. So uh, coming back to your, just what you were talking about before with DOL um, and advisors, being questioned about whether, I mean, being looked at as whether they're overcharging their clients. Is that, is that a, is that a question of the value that they're providing to their clients in terms of the work that they do? Or is that in, is that insight, or sorry, that uh, inquiry or inquest uh, of the DOL, a look at if if they're charging their clients for something the client's not getting, or are you, yeah, they're trying to they're trying to do the right thing for the investor, right? They're trying to make sure that if there is a, a fee that an advisor or an RAA charges above the average, that they need to be able to document and justify why they're charging that. And so this is this is not them saying you have to buy the lowest cost ETFs and go passive. They're saying that you need to do the work of documenting and explaining to us. What the value of investing in a two and twenty fund is. So you so to the DOL, you have to establish what you're doing for that in return for that fee. That's right, and, and you to, so, so you have to prove your value. You the same way you'd have to explain it to your you clients. Have to, you have to prove why the allocations, because the advisors aren't getting paid two and twenty. They are allocating to a manager that that is charging two and twenty. And as much as we'd like to believe that two and twenty is dead and doesn't add any value, there's. Um, you know, you, you, you do the right work and you find the right value, you get the value that you want. You get non-correlation. You, you want to make sure that you're getting true hedge funds that have low beta. And, um, and it, you know, it doesn't have to be 2 and 20. It can be factor ETFs that charge 60 basis points to a point and so on and so forth. Right? You, can, you go up the spectrum of fees. But then you have to document it and show, number one, 
my goal is to increase the risk-adjusted return of the client's portfolio. So is my sharp ratio going to be higher or lower if I add these smart beta ETFs and a couple of hedge funds versus my 60-40 portfolio? Well, you can show that through data that the, that the sharp ratio is higher. And that, what, is, what does that really mean? It means that the job of the advisor is to get an investor through a period of time, a 20-30 year period, where the chances of being wrong are minimized. Diversification does that. Right? It's the explicit recognition of our ignorance. And so we want to be able to, as advisors, to hire the right guys that do different things. And, and to do different things, it takes a lot more work, in, infinitely more work than you can imagine. And so you need to outsource that and then justify your fee. Um, the, this but is, you're saying that a lot of advisors have taken this DOL inquest they just don't in the wrong way, that, that they've, they've shied away from. They simply, a lot of advisors simply said, I don't want the headache. I don't want to have to justify. And so I'm just going to go traditional. And they're never going to get into trouble for that. So this is, again, the difference between a good advisor and a bad advisor, right? And Well, it's, well, it's the old less argument. Effective. It's the old argument of, of <laughs> sure. uh, you know, regulation uh, taking away the incentive to do good things. The unintended things. consequence. Yeah. Yeah. Let, me, let, me, let me phrase it in a slightly different um, light, in a bit of a, a metaphor. So when the Uber app first came out, Taxi drivers really liked it. It allowed people <laughs> to get a taxi. It allowed to, them to pay cashlessly. It gave them the offer to tip, and they tipped more. Taxi cabs thought this was a really great thing. I liken that to the passive portfolios that have gained so much popularity through the advertisements of uh, Vanguard and BlackRock and through the pressure that have come from the regulators. And then Uber launched a ride-sharing service. And now taxi companies don't like Uber so much. <laughs> now, what do you think BlackRock and Vanguard are doing as we speak? They are offering direct access to those same portfolios that those thoughtful advisors responding to the pressures of DOL and the pressures resident in uh, Canada to reduce fees and go passive. You're talking about one ticket solutions? Yeah, it yeah. doesn't even matter. Yeah. You can do the one ticket solution, yeah. you can build it yourself and have the, the, that, that, that low price passive portfolio. But now that I'm an educated taxi rider or ride sharer, I think what you're gonna find is that advisors are gonna be less friendly as their clients say, wait a second, the first thing I attacked was the asset manager's fee because of the, the lack of ability for that manager to add value, you think your one or one and a half percent fee on the wealth side is safe? Oh no, you, we have mass popularity of these passive portfolios by these very large producers. Why on earth do I need to pay you a 1% fee for that? Maybe the fee I'll pay is 25 basis points and my tax planning and whatnot why would that scale with my asset values? Why wouldn't I pay you a fee for that? And so I think the next, um, if I can Uberfy the conversation, we're at the point where taxi drivers were pretty happy with the Uber technology interface. That's where we're at. The next thing that's gonna come under direct and concise fire is the wealth management fee being charged by advisors on top of the asset management fee. And uh, there will be, I think, there will be a, uh, a demand from the consumer to require that to be um, uh, um, 
very, very provide a tremendous amount of value. So how might we do that? Well, right. we can provide a more robust portfolio level vol complementing the 6040 that's low in cost, call it zero there. And then the thoughtful construction of non-correlated strategies, taking those drawdowns, you know, from 50% in worst case or 30% in worst case scenarios to maybe 10 or 15% in, in many scenarios. And then wrapping that, some, some estate planning, some tax planning, some thoughtful uh, use of, of um, you know, maybe life insurance or whatever the case may be. That's the only way you're going to be able to defend that 1%. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So, you have to you have to bundle all of yeah, the other if you're going to defend it and, aspects and, of advice. And our industry yeah. has said, "We'll give you more services. Yeah. Please don't attack our fee." Uh, well, I can tell you that you know that, advisors have been doing that forever. I mean, that's that's nothing course. new. In, integrating estate planning, tax planning, sure, uh, insurance into into your business is is well, something that's been going on for a very long time. So now now you really have to. Uh, Promote the value of that, absolutely. Right, and, and in the light of CRM two, as as yeah. you've said though, even even worse. If I'm I'm suggesting that maybe they've been underutilized. You're suggesting no, they're they're actually they're there in full. Well, that's what the one percent was was for, um, and I get this passive portfolio, and I get the one percent for all those things. I'm not I'm not sure. I think I think there's going to be a higher level of of um, value required at both the portfolio level and the financial planning level exactly. if 1% is going to be that's, maintained. That's Given we have a low yeah. environment rate, right? So, um, oh my God, if you have a bond portfolio, the bond portfolio yields 2.5% and there's a 1% charge? <laughs> yeah. Wow, are, uh, you got to add some yeah. value there, right? And then, I mean, don't even get me started on long short. So you, you have this, you want this six vol long short portfolio? Let me get this straight. So you have a portfolio full of beta, and then you give money to this other guy and he's going to go long and short. That beta that he's going long, you're paying 2% and 20% and your portfolio is already loaded with it. Mm -hmm. Give me a de designated short portfolio provider, not long and short, because I got beta coming out my ying in my traditional portfolio. And I would pay 2 and 20 for the dedicated short. But why on earth am I going to let you charge me 2% and 20% performance fee on the long book that you have in your long short? That's just not smart. And I don't care who the asset manager is picking the stocks. They're saying they can overcome 2 and 20 on their long book. That's not true. That is, that is I, I have yet to see one, right? The, the long short book, all, you know, so I think that, that you have a very tall order to try and get through a long and short uh, 2 and 20 portfolio where your long book is, you're already full of beta in your portfolio. So you've added beta and then they're going to short against that beta. Just give me the difference, if you don't mind. <laughs> yeah. Look, the, yeah. I think the, yeah. um, the I think the the, the, fu the key thing here is to say yes, you have to add services, but you know these investment advisors are called they're called investment advisors. There's a large portion of the population that might say your services are fantastic, but I've annualized at zero for ten years. I want an investment advisor that does slightly better than that, right? So, as um, as their, their passive portfolios are, now you can get it for free from another provider, the right. one the, that is being Uberized. You need to also focus on your investment portfolio. You need to increase those returns. You need to give investment advice along with all the other services. The other services aren't going to be enough. But the, right. that, that cost thing has taken 
the eye off the ball, hasn't it? It, uh, it has. Yeah. This is why it's, it's so, like I said, it's so difficult to even have the conversation. We're heretics. How could we? How could we recommend higher cost ET, smart beta ETS? How could we recommend people invest in hedge funds at a high fee? Because there's value there. You just have to take the time and do the homework to get the right things and put the portfolio together in a smarter way. And that takes time, effort, money, investment in your business, all the things that create robust organizations that can help their client, in this case, the client being people that need their money to grow. Mm. Rebalancing too, right? We talked about rebalancing and how uncomfortable oh, that could be. What's that worth? Yeah. <laughs> it's worth the entire yeah. fee on the account, yeah. right? And, yeah. and so if you're, if you're thinking about the, um, uh, the fee, you want to think about the portfolio level fee. Right, so if, if something is truly extremely different, non-correlated to your portfolio, you would just pay more for that. Definitionally, you would pay more for that because at the portfolio level, it would have a larger impact. Again, you know, the idea of is the impact low or high? Um, if you're, you know, adding emerging markets, yeah, it's diversifier. But the impact is going to be on the lower end. If you're adding, you know, a long, a long, short factor premia um, style portfolio. That's going to be very different. Yeah. And so that non-correlation is what you, you simply pay more for it. And then the other thing is, I don't know we've talked about it, but you know some, some providers will actually provide these products and they'll provide them at a very low level of vault to try and uh, deceive you on the fee. So if I provide you a, uh, let's say we're going with a, a style premia fund and there's, there's a provider in the US, they charge like one and a half percent, the vol's like seven or eight. Well, that, that's, that's at, so the vol of the market is 15 to 20. Right. If I'm charging you 1.5 for seven vol at market vol, i.e. 15, I'm charging you 3% if we go fee per unit of vol. That is akin to two and 20, right? But the purveyor is saying, well, look, it's, it's this low vol thing and look at how low my fee is. It's full, it, you should be looking at it as fee per unit of volatility. And hopefully it's differentiated. And you shouldn't be scared of higher vol products because remember, all of the, all of the major providers of wealth advice have these rules that say, if you're a moderate investor, you can have about 20% in alternatives. Well, as Rodrigo highlighted earlier, you wanna, you wanna make sure that 20% has impact and then the fee can be very deceiving because if it's a low vol product, so yeah. you're paying two and twenty on a six so, vol long right. short so, portfolio, you're paying two and twenty on six vol. Yeah. So if it's a sharp of one, so for one unit of risk, you're going to get one unit of return, and you decide to invest in a strategy that has a volatility of six. Hence, they sh the expectation is a six six units of return. You're paying two and twenty on that six percent. Yeah. So that. That's, what if you got the this, exact this, same strategy at 12% volatility, where you're getting 12 units of return for 12 units of risk, is gonna have a higher impact to your portfolio and your fee is lower, right? Your 2% on something that annualizes at 12 is better than going for the two and 20 at six fall. It doesn't have to be two and 20. Yeah. It could be a, a, a factor ETF that charges yeah. 30 basis points versus one that charges 60 basis points at three times the volatility. You want that impact to your portfolio as long as it's diversified and the fee per unit of risk is much lower. Mm. So if start dividing the volatility of your, your fee divided by the volatility of your portfolio and then start to define who's more costly here. Yeah, so we're, we're coming back to the conversation that you and I had last year mm -hmm. um, about that, that you shouldn't be taking 
that alternative portion of your portfolio and putting it into low vol, mm-hmm. you should be taking it and putting it into something with more yeah. volatility, more impact. Yeah, so our hedge fund yeah. is, is, you know, run at 15% volatility, yeah. which is rare. Most hedge funds run at, you know, 10 to 15, the most popular ones run at five. Well, you give me 10% of your portfolio and I'm going to have three times more impact of that portfolio. My fee per unit risk is much lower. And it's, you know, we think it's quite unique and that it's multi, multi-strat, multi-diversified, right? So if, if when selecting managers, you want to have a high, a high um, bang for your buck, for your proverbial buck, and high impact of that portfolio. And the, you know, we launched something that is unpopular. It is unpopular to, to provide that level of risk. But it answers the question if a client says, what am I paying for? And you can say, this is what you're paying yeah, for. Yeah, you have something to say. Yeah. Well, think about it in the context of the... the because if the, you're just doing everything that everyone yeah. else is doing, then, then how right. can you, dif- you... You know, it's not just about differentiating for the sake of differentiating, but being able to say to your client or to your investor, uh, here's why there's a higher cost uh, because we're doing some, some things in here that are unconventional. Not only that, yeah. I would add that, you know, in, in the example Rodrigo used, he talked about a 5% vol versus a 15% vol. Remember, that means that I can put one third of the amount of money in the 15 vol product and have the same portfolio impact. Right. So, so let's, let's think about that. That means I so have. Now we're getting into something along the lines of risk parity. Where, where right. Well, and, and, and yeah. the idea that. Not quite, um, but the yeah. elements of it. Yeah. yeah. So it, it's called capital efficiency. Yeah. And so the idea is that rather than me having, or the advisor, the client having to take a 15% position, which means I've had to take 15% out of positive risk premium in the portfolio, right? Let's, let's take the 60, 40 example that has positive long-term risk premium of the equity risk premium and the bond risk premium, the duration premium. So those are positive uh, returning factors. So now I want to add a diversifier, but I've got to take 15% out of the portfolio, out of those factors. Right. Right. So I've got, not only do I have this, this portfolio has to make a, a return, but it's also taking away from the return that the balance of the portfolio has. Whereas if I only have to give 5% to that alternative manager, because they're managing at 15 vol, 95% of my portfolio remains in the balanced portfolio, remains there harvesting and harnessing the global risk premium that I'm encountering. And, mm-hmm. and to be clear, that 60-40 portfolio runs at 10% volatility on average. Okay? Yeah. So by grabbing 10% sleeve out of the 60-40 and then putting it into a manager that let's say has the same sharp ratio as the 60-40, but you're going to five vol, you're now reducing the return expectations for that whole portfolio. You would, at the very least, want to match the volatility of the things that you're taking out to buy. So if it's 60, 40, at 10, you at least want to have that alternative bucket be a series of managers at 10 vol. But if you actually want it to have an even bigger impact and offset the dominance of the 60, 40 portfolio with the, with the you know, crucial amount that's given to you to invest in alternative investments, you want to go even higher than that. I, 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 like, the way, I, like, I like the way Mike uh, made the illustration. I think, I think if, you can, if you can move 5% into that alternative space versus upsetting 15% of the portfolio in the client's mind mm-hmm. to do that. That's more acceptable. Sure. It's a step in that direction. And exactly. the fee. It's productive. Correct. And yeah. the fee, I had to give you, you're, I'm going to give you $15. Well, what are you charging the fee on? 15. 
I'm going to give you $5. What do you charge you the fee on? Five. That's right. It means that 95% of the portfolio is still in your passive fee, which is low, super low, and 5% is in the higher fee. But the impact is the same. Yeah. The overall fee drops. When Yeah, when you go where the yeah. client is like, tell me how much I'm paying you. Now you can have either 15% at a very high fee or 5% at a very high fee. When you add it all up, it'll still come in at a reasonable level. We're only doing 5% at this high, mm-hmm. high fee area. And, and when it averages out, it's, we're at 30 basis points. Right? You add more and more of that low, volati- low volatility, low impact, high cost, you're going to have some explaining to do. Right? But do, do you think, I, I, it doesn't, you know, from this conversation, what I get is that there's very little time, there's possibly very little time being spent within the industry by its practitioners, by advisors, on the subject of how much risk are you getting in a particular, any particular instrument, how much volatility, what the measures are, what does that cost? And how much of it should be in the portfolio? I, I, I think, you know, that's one area. I think, I think, you know, uh, where you know pricing of risk is not even discussed. Like, like and I think that's because yep. you can't, you know, they're not necessarily going. I mean, people in the business are not necessarily going to their clients and saying, "This is how much risk we're taking, and this is what it costs," because the client wouldn't understand it possibly. You know, right? It, it's and, structural, right? And it's systemic. So the. the Part of the problem is, what I mean by structural, is the way the industry views risk from the regulator on down is on individual line item yeah. rather than portfolio level vol. Now, that some of that is to be interpreted by the different firms, and then the different firms have taken their own interpretation of that. I have not seen a firm at a, at a major North American level where they're reviewing client portfolios on a portfolio level vol basis and they're suggesting changes based on that. What they're saying is, here I wanna buy this hedge fund, here's the offering documents, and by the way, on the offering documents, it says you can lose all your money in this offering memorandum portfolio, which by the way, in, you know, I know we've picked on long short portfolios, let's, let's take a little pressure off them. Definitionally, a long short portfolio is not gonna to go to zero, uh, or it's gonna to go to zero a lot slower than an ETF of diversified Canadian stocks will, right? Right, Because it's long and short. I mean, they'd have to be really bad for that to happen. So we have the industry that requires a client signature, which is categorically, definitionally false. And so that's what I mean by structural and systemic because it's it's across the board. It's not just one firm that's that's required to do this. So that provides the opportunity for a more insightful approach but but where there's a long way to go, and and but I think in Canada we are in a position where we could do better in in and very quickly. I I travel around the world uh, discussing the research that we do, and I speak to pension plans across the planet, and every one of them says, "Man, does the Canadian pension plan and Ontario teachers and case have it right? They are the best, and yeah. they and their results show that." They are the gold standard. They are the benchmark. And the Canadian pension plan should have the ability to establish the benchmark and educate the regulators where it can trickle down to the banks and then to the advisors so that the final investor gets what what they are getting, what we are all getting from our pensions in CPP. I mean, they are doing all these things. Maybe that should be the reference portfolio. It's a little difficult because yeah. they have access to things that we cannot right, in terms right. of private equity and you know mining and uh, and forestry and the like. But there is the theory, the theory behind it, the cash efficiency, the diversification, 
they don't they're not looking at line items and asking man should we did we did we luck out because we had that market neutral strategy there that didn't do so well that did that did well in a way they are looking at the overall portfolio right so i mean it, it, we we are sitting in a particular spot where the leaders of what happens to be the world of portfolio construction um, can do better and can help us. And we can look at that and say that's not outlandish. Speaking of uncomfortable, um, and since we're talking about the uh, pension plans, would it be, would you say that it would be comfortable or uncomfortable to, assuming you could do all the same things? Uh, all, all things being equal, if you went to a, your client and said, or in, in general, if you, if you went to clients and said, this is how all your portfolios are going to be structured, just like CPP, OMERS, I mean, all of the sort of great pension plans, would that, be, would that be something that would take most investors beyond their comfort level right now? Well, because given that alternatives yeah. represent 30% of the CPP's portfolios, yeah, it's already, you're already it's, getting it's on uncomfortable territory. Unequivocally, yes. And, 100%. Yeah, and, but and they, they were perfectly and, and all also, right I'd also it. like <laughs> to add that uh, what we're going to do, Mr. Klein, is I'm going to uh, give you your statement once a year, six months after the NAB struck. <laughs> Right, so that when you yeah. do complain about it and you ask about it, first of all, I won't tell you what the new NAV is. But if I were to tell you, it's too late anyway because you can't do anything about it, and and you're locked in for life. Like these are the, the benefits, right? There's yeah. a few other other issues there that allow them to to have the free reign to do what they need to do that is correct and right and optimal. Um, but there, at the very least, it, it could be the north star for every advisor, right? Not perfect. But, but the there's an idea, right? I mean, I, I think Absolutely. you guys are already having this talk. I think you're already on that, but. Yeah. And can you imagine if we were to say, oh, by the way, um, we can't invest in anything in the pension fund that the clients wouldn't understand. <laughs> if I hear that again, you know, again, we, we span the continuing of, continuum of low complexity, high transparency to high complexity and low transparency. And um, this is beyond the, um, the mind, uh, the, the abilities, the investment abilities of the average individual investor out there. To say that, you know, the client has to understand something in order to invest in it, you know, um, I don't understand my toilet, but I, I don't use an outhouse. I use right. the toilet. And it, to have this sort of, this this well, the outhouse standard. is the most direct yeah. route. <laughs> and, and I understand how and that plumber, works. And the plumber doesn't have an obligation <laughs> to explain to yeah. you step by yeah. step what he's going to do yeah. and how toilets work before he works on them. Correct. Right? Yeah. So, so again, I would call to all advisors and allocators to understand that whoever is advising you is responsible to have that advanced level knowledge is responsible to, you, you should be engaged in a fiduciary relationship where they understand that advanced level knowledge, they understand the intricacies of how the portfolio works as a whole. And that that, that portfolio level vol is being, is what, it's what is being targeted for your eventual financial needs, right? And that's what should be being done. Just saying that, just saying, you know, we're going to have diversifying assets of different kinds that you may or may not understand. But I do. But I do. Mm -hmm. is, that's, that's a huge leap. And, and to think that somebody, um, as a Canadian investor who has, you know, that, that home, this is, again, uh, structural and systemic. Why do you think Canadians have 70% of their portfolio in Canadian stocks? Because they think they understand them. 
because they drive by them every day and they say that's right. TELUS and that's Royal Bank. The the whole the whole system of way we created is creating these structural and systemic issues. That's why they have the home country bias. The home country bias is being driven by the fact that the advisor or the allocator has to invest in something you understand. And and it's wrong. Is it look yeah, as a fiduciary? That's like fiduciary. that's like going to your doctor and, and understanding exactly what your doctor's prescribing. What's the sta- what's the statin doing to my lipidology again? <laughs> well, yeah, how or, did that uh, work? You know the ads, the yeah. ads, the ads for drugs. Oh yeah! Oh my God! The <laughs> leakage. Yeah. Oh my God! <laughs> anyway, look. I think the what we're missing here is what 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 most people are missing here is can, Canadian portfolio managers have the exact same fiduciary responsibility as the managers of the Canadian pension plan. They are fiduciaries, which means they have to put the interest of the clients first. And that it is not necessary for the client to understand what they're doing. It is necessary for the fiduciary to know what they're doing. And then within their level of expertise, provide the best possible outcome for those clients in their situations. Full stop. Yeah. There is no need to make sure that the client understands. There isn't. Now, I understand that there's a wide array of advisors out there that are not fiduciaries. It's a caveat mTOR reality with IROC and line items do matter. Right. But if you're a portfolio manager, you need to think about the portfolio level uh, value, the portfolio level approach, and you do not need to explain yeah. it to your clients. See, we, for we the, really, for we the really advisor, full with, circle. yeah, we have. Yeah. I, I love the discussion because everything we've talked about falls into the, uh, the you know, the the, um, the the bucket of uncomfortable. Versus mm-hmm. comfortable, and, I, I, you know, the I, behavioral I, aspect. Yeah, the, right? those so I don't want to get fired if I if I take the approach where I'm going to be the portfolio manager and I know all and I have this line item risk yeah. that's awful. The client calls me on it and says, "Well, by the way, you're fired." And I'm like, "But I was your fiduciary, right?" And so again, it becomes that combination of uh, quantitative as well as behavioral. So even if you become discretionary, uh, a discretionary advisor, a discretionary PM. Uh, and and you know you have autonomy over the over your your clients' portfolios. You still have to invest the time oh, yeah. at some point at regular intervals to educate your client on what's happening. Not not nuts and bolts, but but the outcome. Yeah, you right? have to give them context on the journey. This, right? so, this so, is we should expect this. The, 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 there's a lack of performance here. Why? Well, we yeah. should expect this because we're diversified. Has diversification stopped working? Yeah. Right. The, the, the yeah, you, you have diversification is say always having to say you're sorry. If you're diversified, it means you were diversified away from the best performing yeah. asset class, which inevitably, if it's North American stocks or weed stocks or crypto, you're going to be called to the table on. You're just always saying sorry. That's diversification. So it's better to get just used to it. It's better to get used That's to right. saying. That's right. Every single year, there are going to be some big losers in your strategies I'm and some sorry. big winners. I'm sorry. Let me explain. Yeah. Every year, there's going to be yeah. something that's killing it. <laughs> And there's yeah. going to be something that's killing you. And you got to be comfortable with that because over time, they're not all returning zero. If you're a good manager and you're putting the right pieces together, you should expect positive returns from every line item in your portfolio over the next 20 years. But there might be five-year periods where one or two line items make negative or zero returns. And then the next five years, it more than offsets that. So you have to be okay or the client, you have to educate your client and say, this is par for the course. We are not kicking out the manager that did poorly last year because this is how diversification works. We're going to add to them. That's right. <laughs> That's the right. question is, there's, again, <laughs> I love questions in these situations. Do you want to be successful or do you want to be comfortable? If a manager is going through a period of low return slash drawdown, 
is the manager broken? Yes or no? No. No. Actions are very different. If manager broken, uh, sell fund. If manager not broken, rebalance and add. You just don't see it done. No, because we're, we're emotional, right? Amen. Amen. <laughs> That's why I like the little questions. Yeah. During a period of low drawdown, uh, low, low return or drawdown, you know, what, what are we to do? And, and this is why I talk about this. I'm guessing, I'm guessing from our conversation that, that the conversation we're having is a conversation that you have all the time. It's a regular well, part of your day. It's, it's a, absolutely not, not it's only a with, not only with clients, but we come back well, with everybody to, that we you come interact. back to the yeah. whole idea of education. Yeah. We come back to uh, our whole ethos, right? So, so for us, we want to be in the hall of fame of realized risk adjusted returns for the people that we deal with. Now think about what I'm saying there, realized risk adjusted returns. What does that mean? That means I'm going to work super hard at the, at the most difficult time to get you to invest. Rodrigo highlighted in October of last year that we actually had inflows because we were on the phone every day. How can you outperform your manager? You outperform your manager or any manager, any equity line, you outperform that equity line by buying it in drawdown. Definitionally, your money-weighted returns will be better than the time-weighted returns of the manager. That's not what happens in the real world. Resolve's goal is to be in the Hall of Fame of realize risk-adjusted returns for the people that we deal with. So when the going gets tough, we get going and we get make sure we're educating. And then when the going is good, nobody takes our calls. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's like the, the, the well, that's that's perfect. That's perfectly all right. It sort I mean, of is, probably, but it means I'm only talking yeah. to you when it's like highly charged. Again, but most people would that. complain that they don't hear from their advisors when things are highly charged. Most people disregard all yeah. communications when things are good. Yeah, and then only and only call you in when things are off. But if you're spending all of the time that leads up to a period of flux, then then when the flux period comes. They're all ears. Yeah, you'd hope, and I think on average that's true. Yeah, you gotta you gotta preempt. We did a lot of preempting for that, um, and we did it. We also, you know, you make the calls, but you also create videos, create content. Right. We have mm-hmm. over three hundred pieces out there that our clients have read on and off, and uh, and our prospective clients have, and, and a lot of advisors are benefiting from that. They can piggyback off of that and build their own research, and, and that that makes sense for their. Yeah, clients. you guys have an incredible blog. We've got, guys, we've got the 12, I, I think 12 in days Canada, of investment I, I, wisdom I, I, podcast, which, I mean, you know, we're covering a lot of the topics here, but it's it's literally six or eight hours of these concepts and ideas explored at deeper levels because yeah. we want, we know that you don't rise to the occasion. You sink to the level of your training. And this is at all levels, allocators, institutions. We, we know institutions, we've seen, we've seen the research, the managers they fire going out do better the next three years than the managers they hire. Mm-hmm. So this is pervasive. This is a this is across the board. There's not it's not just retail. It's institutional. It's allocators. As you said, we're human. So um, I'm not. We're not quants. Um, we, we're, we're quants because we're human. Because we want to stick to the rules and because we know that these behavioral vulnerabilities will befall us. Just because you're aware of the behavioral vulnerability does not mean you're immune to it. You're not. And so that's why we have become quantitative in our approach at our shop. Again, we just ask questions. If in low return drawdown, is broke? One answer. Is in just normal course drawdown? Another answer. Execute. And, it, and that, yeah. that pressing of the button 
Mm. In 13 years of me doing this, has not gotten easier, right? Like it's automated, mm-hmm. but every time I see it being done, I'm like, oh my god, that feels painful. Like it is, <laughs> it, it doesn't change. It's not. Just don't look. Yeah. So how, how did it? How did it happen? How did you become quants? Well, I think I think uh, probably we all have an individual journey yeah. on that. I, I think you know, oh eight, oh nine was informative in that. Um, you know that that is a, a point in time where you're like, okay. The idea of having um, client and advisor interactions during these highly emotionally charged times leads to uh, extremely differentiated outcomes. And so that lacks, uh, that lacks scale, um, that lacks efficacy across the board for the client base, and then you have, you have um, a, a dispersion of results. And so for us, it was it was a, a couple of things, but you know, sort of 08, 09, wanting to be consistent in the level of service, understanding that when you're interacting with the client, those results, if they're good, they're the client's doing, and if they're bad, they're they're your doing. Um, and I think that just I always sought more clarity and more certainty in the rules and less, you know, sort of uh, vagary because. Again, I know that you sink to the level of your training. You don't rise to the occasion. So when bullets are flying, that's when you have the opportunity to make very big mistakes. And so just having something that uh, a set of rules that you've given a lot of thought to when there was no bullets flying, when you were calm and reasoned, um, and then taking those uh, decisions and bringing those decision rules to effect in these very highly emotionally um, charged moments just provides better returns. And um, if you don't do that work up front, if you don't have your reference portfolio, your I know nothing portfolio, and then what you're going to do as an automaton when that thing shifts around, just here are my rules, boom, 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 then what what could you gauge yourself against? Yeah, exactly. what, what's your What's your benchmark? You have no benchmark. Well, sure, when someone asks you, how am I doing? You can say, you can say it. Yeah. Here's the reference point. Here's my reference portfolio, and it kicked yeah. my ass because here's all the changes I made. Or, or, or I did uh, great here's the, the outcome that we planned for for you because you want to retire in 15 yeah. years, and this is the return that we were supposed to achieve yeah. over the time yeah. so far to date. And let's say it's three, five, ten years out, and and then so you have you have your reference that reference portfolio that you can measure against, but you can also measure against plan yep. and say, here's how we're doing. Well, and then yeah. I think there's a great place where, where advisors add a ton of value, yeah. right? The, the, where the rubber meets the road is the, the idea of oh, what's the portfolio designed to do? What's the reference portfolio that's designed to do that? And then how is that informed by my financial plan? So to ascertain someone's risk tolerance without understanding their financial plan is a pretty significant mistake, I think. How is a client gonna know what their risk tolerance is if they don't understand the consequences of that decision? You're asking me to make a decision without the consequence. I don't like risk, I wanna be in risk-free returns. Okay, that's great, Mr. Client, let me do your financial plan. You're gonna need to save $10,000 a month and you're not gonna be able to retire till you're 70. And he's gonna say, but the other advisor said that I can save $3,000 a month and I can retire in 15 years. What's the disparity? Well, Mm -hmm. he gave you a 7% rate of return rather than a 2% rate of return. Why did he do that? Because he assumed you were comfortable with moderate risk, which is this, this, and this. And the client is then faced- You told me otherwise. Right, the client is then faced with a real decision. I can accept short-term variability in my portfolio 
for long-term success, or I can have short-term variability reduced dramatically to, to zero, and uh, I have to do different things in order to achieve that right. long, long-term long uh, success. And now that client can actually make an informed decision about what risks they wanna take in the short-term and what risks they wanna take in the long-term. And I think, so, so that's another area, I think, of judge general improvement as the entire industry. You know, when you're dealing with your advisor, did he do a financial plan first? And then educate you and then ask you, you know, sort of what your risk tolerances were as they went through the process of account opening. Right. Or was it a risk tolerance questionnaire first that, that led to some sort of well, investment I, what, do, what, do, what, do, what do most investors understand about risk tolerance? Like, it's a crazy question. They're moderate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Everything yeah. in moderation. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I, I think the uh, the emphasis on outcomes is critical, but long term outcomes. Yeah, the the, the ultimate objective yeah. and whatever they are, whether they're two years out, five years out, twenty years out, um, the um, do you think do you think enough time is being spent? In general, like, you know, in terms of investors and advisors, I know there's only so many hours in the day. How much time, you know, do people actually, uh, you know, how much, how much um, time can an investor typically invest in learning about all their options and what the possible sure. outcomes are? And I think they, they could spend at least as much time doing that as they do shopping for their vacation. That's right. But they often don't. I agree. Which is another behavioral <laughs> constraint. Of right? course. Yeah. Or, and then they'll delegate. There's a lot like we, we can get, we can go down this rabbit hole, but yeah. there's a lot of challenges there. Um, and, you know, I think that people are going to do business uh, with, with sort of what it allows them to say about themselves, sort of. And this is a, this is something that we talk about in, in our marketing side. But, it, it, you know, if I'm um, an individual and I go to the largest bank to do business with the, you know, the red paneled office and the blue suited guy with the red tie. What does that say about me? What's kind of says I'm conservative, I'm blue chip, and that's kind of the portfolio I want. It doesn't say that I'm innovative and I want the cutting edge of, mm-hmm. of, of, um, of investment manager, right? That guy is over at the aluminum building with everything glass and the, and the, 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 the potentially, you know, 65 inch monitor, you know, um, high tech envision high tech place here, the Googleplex. Right. And he's going to do business with a bunch of guys wearing sneakers and t-shirts. Um, and so those are, those are different choices that, which are great by the way. Right. I, I think that's amazing, but, those you just got to look at yourself what 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 are my proclivities what like really be honest with yourself as you try and engage investment advice and professionals and what is it that you think you want to achieve how have you approached other decisions like this in your life do you delegate or you are do it yourselfer right so yeah. these are things that you can ask yourself to help yourself sort of be honest as you go through the process with a with an advisor i think some clients would would probably approach their advisor and say um uh, what do you, what do you think I should write down? <laughs> like you tell me about myself, but it's kind of yeah. like because they're 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 actually they're, they just want the toilet fixed. They're like, okay, here's the amount of money I have to save every month. Here's that's not going to vary. Here's here's my um, other pensions. Tell me how I can retire comfortably. Yeah, and I'll just do that. 
and I'll suffer the vagaries of whatever the short-term performance is. It's not a bad way to do it as long as you know the, the, the financial professional is in, in informing you along the way, gives you a good education before you start. But because not all, if not you all, quit in the middle, not all, this is yeah. the biggest thing. It, it, it's the journey counts as well as the end. Yeah. If you quit in the middle, then you receive all the risk and you don't get the returns. And that's kind of the crux of it. If you're going to endure the, the risk, at least get the returns. Yeah. Look, at the end of the day, I think advisors uh, and investors who are, who are looking for options, they need to first think about whether the person taking care of their money is a fiduciary or not. And fiduciaries do a lot of the the heavy lifting. They've already put a lot of thought process into it. Their right. businesses are generally, if you're a portfolio manager, you, your business is generally well established and you have buckets and you can you have a, a more thoughtful way of putting the questionnaires together and having those conversations. You're not trying to deal with uh, 500 unique snowflakes. You're you're really generally more able to run um, you know, run a business, understand the buckets of your clients, put them in the right portfolios, uh, where where everybody's trading in the same way, so that you don't have to have 500, 700 different positions in your book that you don't understand. So I think that the fiduciary side it does a lot of the work. And then you know, if if hopefully this these type of discussions continue, if more people push to increase the level of Canadian and you know American investing, global investing, coming from the North Star that I consider to be the CVP, right? If, if that boat, like kind of, if that lifts all boats, then it'll be easier for investors to find the right advice, to get better service, to get better investments, just by the whole industry coming together and improving the outcomes and creating more, more thoughtful and better portfolios. I think it's a combination of that, so. That's how, you know, if you're going to stumble into an advisor, hopefully every advisor in Canada has gotten better over the next five years. And having these discussions, bringing the conversation about CPP, talking about the spectrum of complexity and simplicity, talking about getting comfortable with being uncomfortable, these are discussions that need to be had in order to do that. So I have no doubt that five years from now, everybody will just be better off. Yeah, I think just so to it, bringing the uh, conversation around full circle, do you want to be successful or do you want to be comfortable? I choose success. <laughs> it's uncomfortable. Yeah, I've gotten, I'm a masochist. I just, I, I just live in pain every single day. <laughs> it's like when I walk in the gym. Do I choose the treadmill or the squat rack? The squat rack. <laughs> so get used, to, get used to saying sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and that, yes, and that. All right. Gentlemen, thank you very much. That's... Uh, that's a wrap. That was a great conversation. Thank you for having Thank us. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you.